Hello, and welcome to the podcast for East 11th Street Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm Jordan Messer, the pastor of East 11th, and I'm delighted you found our podcast. We hope the content here is an encouragement to you and pray the Lord uses it to bear fruit in your life. If you have questions about anything you hear today or would like to know more about following Jesus, you can find us on Facebook by searching for East 11th Street Baptist. And now, here's today's message. Well, this morning, I'm going to invite you to return with me to the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. Return with me to the Gospel of Mark. We've been walking through Mark's Gospel over these past weeks as we journey with Jesus to the cross and also his resurrection as we approach Easter Sunday. Uh, we follow the Lord through his ministry here in the Gospel of Mark. And we come this morning to Mark chapter 6. If you're using the Pew Bible, the blue hardback Pew Bible, uh, you'll find this passage beginning on page 975 in that blue Pew Bible. We want to come to Mark chapter 6, and our text this morning begins here in verse 7. Mark chapter 6 and verse 7. We see here a dangerous aspect of the mission of Jesus. Mark chapter 6, look with me at verse 7. The Bible says, He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, Do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off of the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. We have here for the third time already in Mark's gospel, a recounting of the 12. He specifically mentions the 12 disciples being called out by the Lord. Mark did this in chapter one. He did it in chapter three. And here we have it in chapter six. In the first half of Mark's gospel, he specifically mentions the 12 amongst the larger group of Christ's disciples. And he does this as a way to move the narrative forward but also as a way to remind us about the importance of discipleship. In one sense, the Gospel of Mark is really a training manual for discipleship. It's a training manual, a field guide from the Lord on what it means to live with mission-mindedness as we follow Him, to live as a disciple, a training manual for Christian discipleship. We have the 12 sent out here on their first short-term mission trip. Uh, they have been watching Jesus minister now for some time. Uh, they have heard his sermons. They've heard how he preaches. They've seen him interacting with people throughout the villages and towns. They've seen him heal. 
They've been observing and learning as good disciples ought. But as the crowds are now expanding around Jesus, they are crushing in on him. He now takes this opportunity to empower his disciples and diffuse that concentration around him from the crushing crowds. This also serves as an expansion of his ministry geographically. In this episode, I only read the opening verses, but, but this episode extends all the way over to verse 32. We have another one of these Mark sandwiches. I've told you to look out for these as we go through the Gospel of Mark. He begins a story, he sort of inserts something all of a sudden, and then he'll finish the original story at the end. So you see, I read verses 7 to 13. And then from verse 14 all the way over to verse 29, we have a flashback uh, with this episode of John the Baptist. And then in verses 30 to 32, we see the apostles coming back. It's one episode. Uh, you have the disciples. You have a story about John the Baptist. And then the story concludes again with the disciples. These stories interpret one another. We're meant to use both to understand the same point about the mission and the kingdom of God. So we want to glean from these verses what it means to live with mission mindedness. Because the mission that Christ has set before us is sometimes a dangerous mission. We see in these opening verses 7 to 13 that the mission we have is, first of all, a mission of faith. It's a mission of faith. Living with mission-mindedness, that is, living with the kingdom of Christ in view, living as disciples of Christ, carrying out his mission for the world to bring in those who need to repent, to minister to those in need of, of the shepherd's touch, living with mission-mindedness requires us to trust in the provision of God. It requires faith in God's own resources. That's what these verses are about as he sends the 12 on this journey. And they're to have very little resources. You can carry your walking staff, uh, you're to go in twos. Uh, that might be for security purposes to stay safe. Uh, they're sent in pairs, which, which might be alluding to the book of Deuteronomy, which required two witnesses uh, for, any, for any judgment. Uh, but he sends them out with no bread, with no bag for their resources. They can't carry extra stuff. And he sends them with no extra money. They are going to be relying on the generosity of others in order to resource this mission. And he says, when you go to a house, stay there until you leave town. This might sound strange to us, but typically what would happen is some teacher would come into town and they might gain a little notoriety. They'd have to go find a place to stay. And the more notable that teacher became in town, they would sort of work their way up the social ladder until they were staying with the most prominent person in town. But Jesus says, you're not to do that. 
But when you go to someone's house to stay, you stay there. This isn't about climbing the social ladder. This is about doing the work of the kingdom. And he says, any place that does not receive you, shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. This is a ministry based on faith. Trusting in God to provide the resources and the people for the work of the ministry. Beloved, I want you to understand that the ministry of this church depends completely on your generosity as God has gifted each and every one of you time, money, and energy. This, this passage from Jesus isn't commending a mindset of frugality just for the sake of frugality. Uh, we're not cheap just to be cheap. Uh, but it does teach us that we are to operate within the bounds set by God and to be content with the resources that he has entrusted to us. The apostle Paul reminds us in his letter to the Corinthians that we're to give as the Lord has purposed in our heart, not under compulsion, but from a cheerful spirit because we want to see the work of the ministry continue. And it's God's people coming together, putting their trust in God that he will source every need that they have. This is especially important for smaller to normative sized churches in our country. Just speaking of our own convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, the most churches in the SBC are 50 to 75 people. That's the normal size church. And as our country is declining in church attendance, and declining in overall faith, you need to understand that the size of the Christian pie, so to speak, is shrinking as we have fewer church attenders and fewer uh, believers in our nation. However, you'll notice that larger churches, sometimes called with a little bit of tongue in the cheek, a mega church, those churches seem to be growing. People are flocking to those larger ministry centers. So, so what does that mean? Even though church attendance as a nation is declining, yet there is growth experienced in these larger churches. Well, it means these larger, quote unquote, mega churches are getting a larger piece of the pie, if you will. They're eating up more of the pie. And praise God, I, I want... Those churches to grow, if they're preaching the gospel, if they are reaching people, that is not something to begrudge. We're not in competition. We're in cooperation with one another. And if the Lord is blessing a ministry and he has put his hand upon it, we dare not speak against it. We dare not hold grudges in our heart, but ask for the Lord to bless them and continue to grow them. But it does mean this from a practical standpoint for some smaller to normative sized churches. It means we've got to band together. We've got to work together. We have to resource one another. We can't have this isolated, competitive mindset anymore. Beloved, I want you to hear my heart on this. The days of having five Baptist churches and three Methodist churches and two Lutheran churches all within 10 miles of one another on one road, those days are shrinking fast. They're long gone. 
Some of those churches, if not most, will not survive because there just aren't going to be enough church attenders to go around. There was a day that if you were in one Baptist church and you wanted to do things a little differently or you wanted to hear a different preacher, well, you could just go a few miles down the road, plant your own Baptist church and thrive. There was enough church attenders to go around. But friend, those days are quickly coming to an end. That's just a fact of the world in which we live. And again, well, we don't need to be bitter about that, but see it as an opportunity to work together. We've got to overcome our desire to do things our own way all the time, to step out of a competitive mindset and again, work with other churches, work with one another and support one another. We've got to have an attitude of trust and an attitude that helps us stick together, an attitude of kingdom mission first. We're not in competition. We're in, we're in cooperation. So we've got to step out of that kind of mindset and understand that success in ministry does not come because we were so strategic or we were so clever or we were so good at planning and executing. Success in mission comes as God empowers his people to move forward. It's a mission based on faith. But it's also a mission based on truth. Look here as Mark flashes back in his mind, beginning in verse 14, uh, this sending out of the disciples gives him occasion to remind us of what has happened with John the Baptist. Look here in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. Now, what's going on? Remember, Jesus has been traveling and healing, but now his disciples are traveling and teaching and healing. And they're performing miracles. They're casting out demons. They're healing sick people. So this news is spreading around a large geographical area. So Herod, King Herod, hears about this and the name of Jesus has become well known. And people were saying, well, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he married her. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but could not do so because Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. So understand the backstory of what's been going on. Mark told us over in chapter one that John the Baptist had been arrested, but haven't 
hadn't given us very many details. Well, come to find out, John had been preaching against the immorality of Herod. Now, I know there's lots of Herods and there's lots of names here to keep track of. So let me just give you a brief reminder of who this is. You remember Herod, we're familiar with from the Christmas story, who was king when Jesus was born and had all the, the children, the little boys, two and under put to death. That is Herod the Great. That is this Herod's father. Okay? That Herod has gone. This Herod is Herod Antipas. He reigns the entire ministry of Jesus from 4 BC all the way to 39 AD. He reigned in this location for 42 years as a quote unquote king over the Jews, even though they weren't actually Jewish. So this is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas has a brother named Philip. Okay. Philip has a wife that is catching Herod's eye and he seduces and takes this wife of his brother to be his own. You see how Mark goes out of his way to not call Herodias the wife of Herod. He continually refers to her as the wife of your brother, Philip. This is an adulterous relationship. It's an immoral relationship. It's against the law of God. And John the Baptist apparently continually preached against it. John the Baptist, you know, was a, a fiery preacher. He didn't hold back. He was, a, he was one of those fire and brimstone judgment kind of preachers. And he did not back up from his message of repentance. And he went all the way to the top. And he said, even Herod is living in an immoral relationship. And it bothered Herod and it bothered Herodias, the woman who was in this relationship as well. She wanted to get rid of John the Baptist. We have to understand that the mission we have from Christ is a mission of truth. Mission-mindedness doesn't mean that we alter our message to make it more palatable. The disciples were told, we're still preaching salvation, that men should repent. And John as well did not water down his message of repentance. He called out the immorality of corrupt leaders. He didn't take the tactic of don't ask, don't tell. We just won't bring this up. We'll just, we just will keep silent about it. And, and hey, let's not ruffle any feathers. That's not the message of Christ. That doesn't work for the proclamation of the gospel. You need to understand, again, as I've already mentioned, as church attendance decreases, as there are fewer and fewer believers in our nation, the temptation is to do this. Let's not ruffle the feathers. Let's just say the bare minimum that's acceptable. Because if we're going to reach people who disagree with us on these issues, it's better if we just don't talk about them so that we can get them in the door. But friend, I'm just telling you that's not going to work in the long term. It's dishonest, first of all. But it's not the message we've been given you need to understand that the Christian message is not palatable to the unregenerate person. Paul reminds us this in his letter to the Corinthians. He told them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that 
his message and his preaching were not in persuasive words. Uh, they weren't in flowery speech and, and the wisdom of the world. He said, my message came to you in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You see what he's saying? I didn't come to you with the tactics of the world. I didn't win you over with my impressive speech, with my clever use of language, with my turn of phrase. He goes, I came to you filled with the Holy Spirit because I didn't want your faith to rest on my ability as a communicator. I didn't want your faith to rest on my prowess as a, as a charismatic leader. I didn't want your faith to be won by using the tactics of the world, but in demonstration of the Holy Spirit. He says again in his second letter to the Corinthians that we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved. That the preaching of the word when it comes to the people of God is a fragrance of Christ. It reminds us of Christ. It leads us in worship. But what about to those who are perishing, to those who don't know Christ? To those who haven't accepted the things of God. He says to those who are perishing. Our ministry is like the stench of death. The message that we have is not attractive to the world. Because it's a message of repentance from sin. We will not win people by remaining vague. Or using worldly tactics. It's an aroma of death. To those who are perishing. Mission mindedness means that we speak the truth with an aim to see people turn from their sin and trust in Christ, no matter the personal consequence to ourselves. And we need to know that there very well could be personal consequence. Look what happens in verse 21. So remember, John has been in prison. Herod. For whatever reason is perplexed by John likes to hear him preach but Herodias man she's a Jezebel she's mean verse 21 a strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee and when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced she pleased Herod and his dinner guests and the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Immediately, she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. So immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison. And brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came, took away his body, and laid it in the tomb. 
The apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Mission mindedness prepares us for the ultimate sacrifice of discipleship. John paid the ultimate sacrifice for following the Lord. Martyrdom for the name of Christ. There's really no higher honor for a Christian to give his very life in service to the Lord Jesus. And John the Baptist paid that ultimate price because he refused to stop preaching. He refused to stop being an influence for holiness. And he paid dearly for it. We in living here in the West know very little about this very central fact of Christianity. That the Christian faith bids us to come and die. We've heard that phrase. We've maybe even sang it in songs, read it in our Bibles. But for most Christians throughout history, that is not an empty call. There's teeth to that verse. When Jesus says, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. Because for most Christians living in most parts of the world throughout most of time, it really could be a death sentence to follow Christ. You and I are the privileged who live in freedom, liberty to speak and preach and move about and enjoy our lives. But we would do well to remember what the book of Revelation teaches us in chapter 13, where the beast is pictured as an authoritarian governmental power. And it rises up and is given authority to make war on the saints and to conquer them. That for most of us, living in a nation, in a place that is radically opposed to Christian values, is the normal. And Christians will lose their lives for what they believe and what they teach. The question is, will we persevere to the end? in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Some might have looked at John's life and see it wasted. Spending the last year of his ministry in prison just because he wouldn't keep quiet. Just because he wouldn't change the subject. Jesus called him the greatest man who ever lived. What a waste to lose your head over someone else's affair. But beloved, I want you to understand this. No life is wasted that is given in service to Christ. When John saw heaven, everything he went through had been worth it. No life is wasted that is lived in service 
to Christ. And you know that in times of great sacrifice, we often find our sweetest rest in the Lord Jesus. Don't you love how this passage ends? Mark brings it around there in verse 30. The disciples have been out. They understand the risk. Jesus told them, if you read Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 10, before he sent them, he told them, listen, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Isn't that encouraging? That was instruction from the Lord Jesus. He said, and you need to be aware of men. Now that's exactly where he's sending them. <laughs> so we understand it wasn't an easy call. It wasn't an easy task. It wasn't a primrose path of service, but it was the mission of Christ to go where the power and the teaching of Christ is needed. And when they come back, he said, you rest. Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a while. In times of greatest sacrifice, we often find the sweetest rest in our Savior. In times when we've been called to give our all, we find that Christ pulls us in closer. And that makes any hardship and any difficulty worth every minute. Let's pray together. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed just for a moment as we consider these verses. Just want to lead you in a brief meditation on these verses that we've considered in living with mission-mindedness. Some of us are so focused on our own mission, our own purpose, what we want, what we desire, what we think is best, and we can lose focus that we are here in service of Christ to see his gospel proclaimed, to see his justice done, to see his love poured out on the people that he has shed his own blood for. So would we as a church commit ourselves to walking this mission by faith, not wavering from the message, knowing that we have truth to proclaim and understanding the risk, but also knowing that with every hardship, we're pulled in closer to Christ, that he has rest prepared on the other side and that he has not left us to do this alone. He's given us his word. He's given us his Holy Spirit to see us through each and every moment. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you've not repented of your sin, and you've not trusted in Christ for salvation, and you've not looked at his cross and seen his resurrection as it was done for you, I would encourage you not to leave this place without trusting in him, repenting of your sin. That just means turning from what I want and putting my trust in Christ. I would invite you to do that today, to not leave this place without trusting in him. If you need counsel, if you need prayer, I'll be here at the conclusion of the service and would love to speak with anyone about following Christ today. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word preserved for us. We thank you for the mission of Christ that Jesus didn't think we were too far away to come on mission to seek us. We were not too far gone. We were not so lost that your Holy Spirit could not find us and call us. 
God, would you give us a heart for the lost, a heart for this community, a heart for one another, so that we might embrace the hardship of the mission, see it with joy, see it through the eyes of Christ, and walk in it by faith. Help us to lean on one another, to get out of our isolated mentality, to get out of our competitive spirit and work with other churches to see your mission go forward because it's not about us. As John himself confessed, we must decrease and you must increase. May that be the prayer and the desire of our hearts. In Christ's name we ask this together.